This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Ringo was my first guy when I was a little kid, but hearing Tom Sawyer, YYZ, Limelight, Free Will, et al. for the first time, I had the experience I think most of us had. Our young brains melting down with excitement and confusion. Wait, that's possible? The drums can do that? I immediately became another one of the professor's indirect pupils, recreating every meticulously composed groove and perfectly placed fill. So ensued a decades-long master class in how the drums can not just be the supportive accompaniment, but the driving creative force in a rock song. Neil's cerebral process and stoic performance style belied his deep humanity. He had the humility to strip his technique to the studs in the middle of his career. He had the perspective to step away from the music for a time when tragedy struck. He had the curiosity to travel the world learning about all kinds of music and cultures. He had the respect to learn from and pay tribute to his heroes. He was fully aware of his own hero status, but never sought to exploit or revel in it. He just kept making records and playing shows, striving for the next thing he did to be better than the last, better in his own mind, most importantly. I can't think of a drummer who did more to advance and expand the scope of the instrument. Yes, the drums can do that, because Neil did it first. That was written by my co-host Zach Albetta a few days after we heard of Neil's passing. We've never done a tribute show before, but as many of you know, Neil was a huge influence on me and inspired me in so many ways that uh, I felt like doing a show like this aids in processing what's changed in our community. It was fun to reconnect with some of these former guests, and I hope you enjoy their stories about Neil. Here's Jason Sutter. Neil Peart, obviously, you know, for me is a is a big deal um, for everybody. But, you know, I, I was that age. And I remember, like, when Moving Pictures came out, and I was like, you know, but I didn't, I started playing drums. So I was a drummer already. I'm, I'll never forget. That record and Back in Black came out the same year, which for younger kids probably, you know, probably seems pretty crazy. And it was crazy for us to be alive when that happened. Right. And I remember being in like homeroom and a dude like putting, you know, little mini, you know, Walkman headphones on my ears and said like, check this out and listen to it on tape. And it was just like, you know, both those records were life changing. You know, it was like, yes. okay, I'll never be the same after this. And, uh, but anyway, that record, especially in moving pictures, which I still feel like is ounce for ounce, probably the best rush record, even though I'm also a huge fan to be fair of the very first rush record, which is bizarre, but it's still one of my favorite records though, even though it's not Neil Peart, but I think it's worth mentioning. It's still one of my favorite records, but that said, this is about Neil. Um, I think I got to see them and I was still young, uh, in for the grace under pressure tour, which would have been around 1984. Four, I think, I but um, yeah. yeah, right around there. And I remember like going to that concert. It was in Lake Placid, New York. I was growing up upstate New York in the middle of nowhere. We didn't see shows. You had to go to Montreal to see bands like Kiss or something. But they played in Montreal, so we drove an hour. And a, kid, a friend of ours' dad drove us up. All all three of us that went. Maybe there were four, but three of us. I know. I you know I'm a professional drummer. The, the one of the dudes who's a bass player it, I just hung with, he's the head of the jazz department at, at UTEP in El Paso. 
And his brother was in the car too. And his brother became one of the most famous French horn players of all times and played French horn in the Chicago symphony, which is back when it mattered actually was actually like saying, I want to become the president and you do. (laughs) Um, anyway, that's that hard for those of you listening. Like, yeah. So anyway, we all were, were music fans and rush fans, but anyway, that was amazing. I remember walking around that arena and seeing that. And it was like, that, that sealed the deal for me saying, I'm going to do this. Like, I want to do more of this. I want to be around these people. And to this day on tour with Cher, we always playing as arenas the last two years. I still get up and part of my routine is to walk through the venue, walk around and walk by the merch and the food and everybody uh-huh. before I play to kind of ground me. Yes. I don't know why, but to this day, I do that. That was the first place it was a rush concert where I did that, where I was in that kind of size of arena. And I just remember being amazed. But to me, just before I get into it, Rush was like, I've seen Rush probably 10 times. Mm-hmm. And and that show, to see Rush is really, I think, the penultimate rock concert. You know, I really think it all it was. There's no rock concert that is so consistent. And the fun thing is that, you know, you have these generations, which Grace Under Pressure was the beginning of, where you have like these, these like hardcore 70s, like rock dudes who love that era. And then you have like the kind of dorky techno computer geeks who loved like everything that followed oh Grace yeah under pressure and everything in and between you see the dichotomy mm-hmm. yeah those two guys in the audience and then everyone is air drumming and everyone is so anyway that was that was that was something about those shows that i feel like there's no show i've ever been to that felt so much like we're all in this together mm-hmm. we're, we're a team rush here's more of jason's story talking about working with vertical horizon and playing drums on a record that neil also played on some road we'll start recording on this record Um, i've got like a bunch of songs and you're going to be on it i was like okay great so in between smash mouth shows i start recording this and after the first session i record three songs um at a studio and in hollywood in the valley studio city sound in, in in north hollywood and matt after we finish it goes great and he's, he's super over the moon, loves the sounds. He's so happy because the songs are already kind of demoed. I'm just kind of playing over them and he's going to kind of go from there. So I'm playing along to kind of demoed, finished song arrangements. And mm-hmm. then, right. That yeah. makes sense. So he can kind of tell what's going on. We finish and he, 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 a few days later, he calls me and he says, Hey man, that was great. I'm going to have more songs soon, but I wanted to let you know that, uh, I didn't want to tell you before you started playing, but I want to let you know, uh, Neil Pert, has already recorded two songs for the record. You're going to be on a record with Neil Peart. Yeah. And I was like, mind blown. Like what? Neil Peart doesn't play on other people's records. And uh-huh. you know, this is the thing. It's like, he's like, you're going to be on a record with Neil Peart. So I was like, that's insane. I'm glad you waited to tell me. Yes. You know, that's, that, that's insanity. Um, so that's happening. And, um, time goes on and I end up recording more. And then I am getting to gig with Chris Cornell a year later. And, and I'm still working on this record. Like I've literally switched from like Sabian to Pisces and like throughout like literally two years, I'm finishing this record. I end up playing on like 10 songs. Yeah. And I think, I think there's one of the drummer, maybe Blair Sinta is on one track and Neil Peart is on two tracks. Right. Track. Right. Insane. So that happens. And, um, Matt befriended Neil through a series of events, but they're both huge watch fans and car fans. And that happened to be, if I get the story right in Dallas, or somewhere in Texas, and and checks out some really rare Porsche. And he comes back to L.A., and Neil Pert inquires about the same Porsche. And the guy said, hey, there's a rock guy that was just in town. He checked out my car. You might want to call him. And 
you guys can talk about it so that you don't have to come down and look at it. And Neil did just that. They hit it off, became dear friends. Matt Scannell is a huge Rush fan, mm-hmm. you know, as we are. So, and it's amazing. And they become best mates, which is adorable. Yes. And to the point where while they're making this record, they've decided that while Neil's writing a new record, they're going to do it together. So, so Matt is sending Neil all the, the, you know, the finished cuts, or, you know, the mixed cuts to check out, get his take on them. And Neil's sending him manuscripts for each chapter and that's like editing. So they're kind of like, you know, doing this creative hang and they would go do like, you know, dudes weekends. It was really cool they, that Neil could find this friendship and this cool cat. Matt is one of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet and most incredible musician and guitarist mm-hmm. and songwriter. Can't say enough great shit. So we ended up doing the record and, uh, I ended up doing a tour on that record later and playing Neil's parts as well. But in between that, Matt is like, hey, Rush is playing in town, you know, after we finish kind of, you know, over the course of these two years, you should come down. So I go down to, I forget what it's called, but the big arena in town. Now, I, I think it was, I don't know, Staples or whatever, but we go down and Rush is playing and we, their seats are amazing. We're like right up there. And I look over at Matt and I'm like, dude, this is insane. And I say like, at one point I said something along the lines of, um, I'll never get closer to Neil Pert than this. Mm-hmm. And he looks over and he goes, yes, you will. And sure enough, before the last cymbal roll at the encore, I'm being whisked off with Matt and Neil Pert's current wife's parents and his famous bodyguard that he you know does all the trips with is yeah. with us in the elevator. We're on our way down to the dressing room. And I'm like, what is up? <laughs> and we go down and of course you turn the corner and there's like Getty Lee's room and Alex Lifeson's room is going to be like the green room. And, and then we, of course, like the classic, I'd heard stories. Neil's like literally winding through the, you know, as far away from everyone as he can get. Uh-huh. And he's in this tiny little room toweling off. We walk in and he's super cool. And shortly after we walk in is Danny Carey and his girlfriend. And that's it. Yeah. So there are maybe like six of us in this room. And I think his Neil Pert's wife's best friend. Mm-hmm. But I don't think his wife's there. I could be wrong. She might have been. Anyway, uh, that's it. So we're talking like eight people maybe, including Matt and Neil. And Neil sipping on McAllen, you know, and <laughs> yeah. and toweling off. And kind of like being jovial and joking about how comparing the show to like a hockey game. Like, you know, well, we blew it in the first half, but we ended up scoring the goal, witty goal of the second half. <laughs> Just super cool and sweet. And, um, at one point Matt says, Hey, this is Jason. He's a drummer. And Neil says, Oh, cool. Sweet. I know. I'm like, you know, cringing. Cause I know Neil could give a shit about <laughs> talking about drums. Right. Cause I've read all his books. Yeah. Right. You know, I've read all his books. My dad was a, is a rider, a long distance motorcycle rider. So I ended up hipping my dad to these books and he loved them cause he loves national parks and he, pl- he plays drums a little bit, you know, and I bought him a drum set for his retirement party years ago. And so he's like, it was like, these books were made for my dad. So it's kind of a cool connection there. Perfect. But at one point, a few minutes later, Matt says, and I, well, actually Jason was the drummer on the vertical horizon record mm-hmm. and the most, re- and Neil jumps up off his, seat and squares off with me and grabs my hand, shakes my hand vigorously and is like, I'm a huge fan. I love your drumming. That's And he goes on before I can even kind of like stun because he's a tall man. He's a very tall man. People don't, most most of the time you meet your your idols, they're way shorter. Neil's way taller than you'd think. He's a very (laughs) tall man, kind of a deep voice and he's 
fucking Neil Peart. And he's standing in front of me talking about my drumming. Yeah. It was just like, literally like I've never been in that position before. Like you feel like your head's going to explode. I want to like run to the door. And he goes on to tell me about each track because he's lived with these tracks. Yeah. Mind you, I've showed up and I've played the track and I'm out. I don't even know. I, I learned the tune. I played the track. I never hear it again because the record isn't out yet. So I don't, I don't remember what I played. Neil goes through each track in detail and tells me what he liked. It was insane. He's like, dude, the bass drum pattern. I, he's like, I could never do that. I, could, I don't know why. I could just never play that bass drum pattern at the tempo. I love that pattern. I'm like, what is going on? It's so weird. Yeah. And he keeps going, and Matt by, by, is behind him, literally curled up in a ball laughing, watching <laughs> my reaction to all of this. Right. And he goes on to say, basically after a while, he, 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 he's just going off on this record and the drumming, and he eventually just says, well, I, just, I want you to know that I'll forever hold you in my highest esteem as a drummer. That's amazing. And that's a quote that I'll never forget for the rest of my, my life. Yeah. And... and and I, was, I looked at Matt, and he looked at me and nodded his head kind of quietly, very somber at this point. And, and he knew. I was like, let's get the fuck out of this room because I don't want to, like, throw up on his shoes and ruin his smoke. <laughs> so we walk out, say goodbye, and we walk out. As we walk out, it really hits me because there are literally, and I'm not exaggerating, it's a rush show in Los Angeles, 20 of the biggest rock drummers of our generation waiting in a line just to see him, to speak to him. Yes. And I'm walking out of there, and he's just, Literally, I'm on a record with this guy, and he's talking to me about my drumming. Yeah, it was just like mind bending. Like he's not gonna. None of these guys have that in common at this, with right. me at that point. Yeah, you know? it's just weird. Yeah. And we're talking like Brad Wilk, Greg Bizanet, um, Ray Luzier, uh, you name it, dude. Mm -hmm. uh, Taylor Hawkins. Mm -hmm. We're talking like I'm not joking. Like Chad Smith. 20 of the hottest LA drummers mm -hmm. and I'm walking out of the dressing room chilling with him, you know? And I remember we, we turn a corner and there's like Geddy Lee and Alex Lifeson with like hundreds of people chumming it up. And I was on tour with, I think I was on tour with Chris Cornell still at that point. So they were big fans of Chris and they had seen the show. So that was weird to see Alex Lifeson. I don't think I met Getty, but I'm a huge fan of all those guys. It was cool to be talking to Alex Lifeson for a minute there. You know, totally different vibe. But talking about Chris Cornell is like still blow, mind blowing that I'm talking to Rush and but Neil singing. And so we leave, and Matt's just cracking up. And as soon as we walk out of there, by the way, Matt says, "I will forever hold you in my highest esteem as a drummer." He repeats it. That's great. Like I was like, he just, he said that right. I'm like, that's like a lyric from like Hemispheres, <laughs> from the guy who wrote the lyrics to Hemispheres. I know. You know what I mean? Yes. It was just, it was just like the biggest brain. I can't even describe it. And honestly, I was just in a daze. Mm -hmm. And the next day, I was at a traffic light, sometime in the afternoon, and I just hit the light. I, I stopped, and all of a sudden, I just like it dawned on me that moment, like mm -hmm. what the importance of that moment for me as a little kid in my whole life, coming up to this point, you know, to have that like your sensei say you've arrived, you know, and it was incredible. I literally broke out in like a cold sweat. It was, it was that moving. This is Ed Toth. Yeah, I was out at NAMM, and, and, you know, the coolest thing I saw was DW had the, the, the picture of him with the 40th anniversary kit that, where it said, you know, uh, Neil Peart, truly an ins inspiration, you know. And then, but, the, but the cool thing about it was on top of this display at Tom's 
where the sign was hanging. They had a bottle of Macallan <laughs> and and a couple of fingers poured in a glass, you know. Yeah. And I thought that was one of the cooler things that I that I saw. It yeah. I mean, you know, the impact of this guy is immeasurable on the drumming community, especially of people a certain age. I mean, I'm 50, and you know, I discovered Neil around moving pictures. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was immediate. I mean, moving pictures was, you know, my dad didn't, my dad had a big record collection, but he didn't have anything like moving pictures, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it was just a different, you know, whereas he had records that had cool drumming on it, um, this was something a little bit different, you know? And it just hit me at the right age. I mean, I think I was 11 in 1980. And so, you know, you get into that, thing where you know i was drawing pictures of his drum kit and you know <laughs> things like that the, the first tour i saw was a signals tour um in 83 and i saw every tour after that um you know his impact was just immediate it was musical composition on the drum kit right which it was the first time that i really noticed that kind of thing i'm sure you know sure people did it before him but that's the first time i really noticed it like you know composing parts on a drum kit that fit exactly within the structure of the music that he's playing uh was an eye-opener like big time yeah yeah and the story that that he tells throughout the song and there's the, the, the the parallel narrative with the the words that he wrote <laughs> yeah very much so yeah and that was the other thing too you know it's not just the drumming with him it's the i mean shit i remember looking up the poem uh kubla khan after i heard xanadu <laughs> you know uh-huh. and things like that you know um and his words were very touching i mean I, you know i remember driving around the streets in the late 80s of small town connecticut I had graduated from high school and hadn't gone off to college yet and wasn't really sure what my path was going to be. And man, I used to listen to the song Mission from Hold Your Fire Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Yeah, it was musically brilliant, but there was something in those words that were telling me like, dude, you know what? You're going to be cool. Like your thing is going to reveal itself. Like just keep going after whatever it is you're going after. Mm -hmm. And you'll be cool. You know, that drive, that inspiration and that drive is all in that lyric of that song. And, um, so, you know, the guy was touching me with his words as well. I still think uh, the chorus of ghost of a chance is the best, most realistic verse about love that Mm. almost anybody has ever written. Um, and you know, I, I right up towards the end of their career. I mean, I, you know, I was, identifying with a lot of the lyrics on the snakes and arrows record yes um as a as a guy who's you know i consider myself to be very spiritual but not very religious and here i am living in nashville where religion is like a starbucks on every corner you know and saying hold on a second like you know and he was addressing some of those things in that so it's just very inspirational um you know and uh you know when i was 14, I wrote a letter to him, or I guess maybe I was a little bit younger, 13 or 14, and sent it to Modern Drummer, and I got a handwritten postcard back from him. Wow. 
I mean, who, who does that? Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I remember writing a letter, ironically enough, I remember writing a letter to the Doobies fan club <laughs> when I was 11 mm -hmm. and getting back like a form letter, you know, with a, with an order form for T-shirts. <laughs> it was like I, I always tease the guys like, yeah, it was my first great. It was my first great disappointment in rock and roll. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, you bastard, you bastards didn't write me back. You wanted me to buy a T-shirt. We felt you know? really bad. So we were, we're giving you a job. You can play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> revenge. Revenge is sweet. Um, so but then, yeah, to get that letter back from Neil and, and you know, it said good luck in your drumming. And, and you know, I, I had asked him about the bottle smashing sound on YYZ and he told me how that was done. And. And I, 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 I'm sorry to cut you off, but yeah, I was listening to the first. Uh, again, I'm revealing my age too. To the first side <laughs> of moving pictures yesterday, right? And um, uh, and I just I love that sound that that plywood and the sound. So how 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 was that done? Well, the way he described it to me in the postcard was that it was a quarter inch piece of plywood smacked onto a wooden stool. And it was combined with him hitting a China symbol, and then they like ran it through a bunch of delays and stuff uh -huh. to get to get the final effect, you know. So there wasn't a, but I, it wasn't there glass, or was that not? No. Oh no, okay. the glass effect came from the from the echoes from the delay. Amazing! It's so, so yeah. cool. It's so cool. Yeah, that's how it was described in, in the. In, was how it was described in the handwritten postcard. That oh my me. god! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, coming coming back further, like moving forward into the sort of uh, internet age now, um, it taught me. Although I didn't realize it at the time, looking back at that, you know, if somebody sends me a little note on Facebook or whatever, then it's sort of drum specific. Yeah, I, I've got five minutes. Yes. I, I've got five minutes to answer that question. And that, I think, goes directly back to receiving that postcard from him. I mean, you know? Yes. Which, which, uh, so there was, a, there was a lesson there, which I didn't realize it at the time, because who knows what's going to happen to your life and career when you're 13, 14 years old, you know? Um, but looking back, I think that was instrumental in, in how I deal with some of that stuff. And then, you know, I never did meet the man, um, but we did have a sort of connection with them. Mm -hmm. um, some years later in 19, I guess it was 97, um, not a lot of people know this, but we had asked and were sort of talking. Um, we wanted Alex Lifeson to produce the Vertical Rise and Everything You Want album. Wow. Um, to the point that we had reached out. We figured, what the heck, you know, the worst that can happen is they say no. Yeah. You know? So we had a bit of a running dialogue going on with Ray Daniels, and um, it was right after, uh, it was, I mean, directly after the stuff with uh, Neil's daughter had gone down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so Al wasn't very interested in sort of doing anything like that at the time, understandably so. Um, but when we were up in Toronto a couple of years later promoting that record, Alex and Ray, we had dinner with Alex and Ray. Oh, wow. And Alex came to our show and all that. And so we sort of had a little relationship with the camp. Um, you know, got to meet Alex and getting on vapor trails a couple of times. Neil, of course, not doing the, the meet and greets and mm -hmm. all that. Right. And then uh, fast forward a little, a little bit longer, and Matt... Scannell, Vertical Rising singer, had uh, met Neil 
um, through a mutual friend, uh, he went over to take pictures of a car that Neil was selling. Um, and Matt and Neil hit it off as people, and Matt ended up becoming one of Neil's best friends. Yeah, uh, you know, late, later in his life. Um, and even though I never met Neil, Neil obviously be, you know became familiar with Vertical Horizon, and he even writes about Vertical Horizon in his traveling music book. Yes, and I mean, talk about like a full circle moment. You know, it's just like I'm reading this book, and and he's talking about my band. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, um, uh, you know, I just, it was just like, wow, you know, and knowing the trajectory of all that, it was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, this makes a little bit of sense. He's become friends with Matt. Why wouldn't he listen to the music? You know? Um, but the kid in me was just like, you know, I wanted to call up my mom and be like, Hey, <laughs> check this out. You know? Oh, no. Amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and then obviously all the, uh, people, all of us reaching out to each other after he passed. Yeah. I mean, talk about the drummer community. I mean, it, it was full on when that happened. And, um, I mean, I cried. I felt like I lost a family member, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And that, that, that might sound excessive to some people, but I don't think so. I mean, when somebody has touched you that deeply yes. with their work, mm -hmm. um, and, and then to all of a sudden they're not, they're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, just a lot of people weren't expecting that news and, you know, it, to, to just sort of have that happen. And it's funny, I, I had just spent the afternoon hanging with a drummer friend of mine that I hadn't seen in a while, um, a fantastic drummer uh, uh, called Jason Smith, um, plays with Albert Lee, and uh, I, I knew him when he uh, played with Five for Fighting back in the day. Oh, right. Um, yeah. We hadn't seen each other in a, in a couple of years, so we were catching up that afternoon, and then I was I had dropped him back at his hotel in Nashville, and and uh, I got a text from a friend of mine that had the news on it, and I just like, you know, my I just it just stopped me in my tracks, you know. And I got home, and I I just wept, you know. Like, I think a lot of us did. Yes. You know. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of us did, and uh, you know the the impact of the men is immeasurable. I mean, we lived. You know, we're we're too young for Krupa. You know, we're too young for Ringo. You know, but Neil was one of those guys. You know, he was like the drum star. You know, um, you know, were there other were there better drummers around than Krupa? Sure. Were there better drummers around than Ringo? Sure. There's even better drummers around than Neil. But what they did was so specific. And the fact that they had drums in the forefront and they were the guys that sort of, you know, influenced generations of people mm -hmm. and some people to even want to pick up the sticks, you know, let alone like I already was a drummer when I when when Rush came into my life, mm -hmm. you know, um, some people weren't. Some people saw him and said, shit, I want to play drums. Yeah, you know, yeah. which is, you know, also the thing that Ringo had and, the, and that Krupa had, you know, that's true. Um, and uh, to see that in our lifetime and to go on that journey, I mean, so yeah, I mean, me listening to Rush for the first time in 1980, I mean, that's, that's what, that's 40 years. I'm 50, 
You know, this guy and his work have been a part of my life for, for 40 of my 50 years on earth. How can you not be moved when, when, um, when, when someone like that passes on? And, you know, the other thing that nobody's really talking about is, uh, and, and I get it, I get it, or some people are talking about it, but obviously not as much as, you know, I was almost more, the father in me was almost more devastated mm. than the drummer in me, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, you know, of, of, of him having to sort of leave his family, you know, um, and, and, you know, that just, and, and you know what, I, I'm sure they'll be fine and, and all that other stuff, but it's just like, you, you just kind of, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, but you're right. I mean, the books are there, the music's there. None of that stuff is ever going to go away. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that's a great thing. And, you know, I'm happy that it, all, you know, he seemed to, uh, you know, he had his privacy to the end. So yeah. he was able to sort of even deal with that on his terms. You know, the way he dealt with his career on his terms, his life on his terms, all that. He was able to, to continue that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, long live Neil. <laughs> so Audible is offering his books for free. Uh, I don't know for how long, but... Of course, I've read all his books, and I still have a lot of them around. But of course, as soon as I heard that news, I jumped on and, and a book that I read while I was on tour in Canada was Roadshow about him oh, touring okay. in the United States. Yeah, and um, it, and it was like, I mean, I laugh at it now that I'm like, hey, I'm living the same life, but I'm in Canada <laughs> as an American, and he's in, you know. But I think what it what it was for me is um, I, I joke about that, but you know, after his passing, there was a lot of of us that were reaching out to each other. But I got a text from my mom. I got a text from my dad. And, oh yeah. And they were like, "Hey, we just heard this news. How are you? Are you okay?" I we knew that he was a big a childhood friend, a college friend. Some of these people I haven't heard from for over 20 years said, "You were the first person I thought of when I heard." Yeah. This. I got a lot of that as well. Um, you know, in my Facebook feed, uh friends from high school that I haven't talked to since, you know, like, "Hey, just checking in on you." <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um you know, my mom, my dad, I mean, my dad sent me a message that was just like, you know, I think it said something to the effect of, and, and, and you love when you're, when your old man drops an F-bomb, you know, <laughs> he's, he, he said, I can't fucking imagine what you're feeling right now. Oh, yeah. You know, and he just said, call me if you need me, you know. So again, it's like, it's almost like losing a family member. My uncle texted me, uh, my brothers texted me, like, you know. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, some pe you know, people called, like, you know, and the drummers were all reaching out, and um, and uh, as as you would do in, in something yeah. like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the influence of the guy is immeasurable. It's absolutely immeasurable. Having not met him, um, which I was always okay with, it was like, you know what, my my relationship with Neil is just fine. Like I, I got, I got the music, I got the books. I have his impact on my life yeah. and lesson lessons that I've learned from him that he didn't even know he was teaching. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I have that. 
So for, for me, I kind of feel like now that I've sort of gotten over the initial uh, grief of it, it's like, okay, well, he, he, you know, he's still out there. You know, he's still out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, I know that he's literally not on the planet anymore, but he's still out there and he always will be, always will be. This is Peter Erskine. I joined hundreds, if not thousands of, of drummers and not only mourning the loss of Neil, but in wanting to you know, honor him as well as to celebrate uh, what he did and, and what he meant to, to us. Yeah. I heard a wonderful interview you did on Q on CBC uh, a couple weeks ago, just shortly after. Oh, yeah, that was uh, about the you know the same hour that that I'd gotten the news, and I excused myself from the conference. I was down in New Orleans for the Jazz Education Network conference, and um, you know wanted to find a quiet place to speak, so I went up to my hotel room mm-hmm. and uh, uh, didn't have much occasion to to reflect. Um, but you know, Neil's the kind of guy that. Uh, you know, it's not hard to to speak about him because uh, uh, he was such an outgoing. I, I mean, I, I I know he he kept uh, his personal affairs and life quite private, but uh, within the drum community, uh, those of us who knew him at least, he was uh, very outgoing and very enthusiastic uh, and quite giving. Um, and so, uh, the words should come easy. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll look forward to, uh, any questions you might have. Sure. Sure. Um, I, I guess, uh, you're one of the, uh, first people that came to mind when we were thinking of constructing this and getting thoughts, uh, about, uh, his impact on, our, uh, some of our former guests' lives and, but you as not necessarily, uh, someone that listened to Rush or grew up uh, listening to me or, or super familiar with his work uh, for early in your life, like some of us were, I'm just really curious about your perspective as a, a teacher, as a, an established drummer in the industry, of course, who was approached by someone with such uh, such a label as you know, as many p- people put on him as, you know, the greatest rock drummer or one of the greatest or, you know, the top 10 Rolling Stone list or something like that. And how you felt about that interaction and what you learned from that experience. Neil uh, deferred in, in two ways. One, he had a very specific uh, thing in mind that he wanted to work on. And number two, he had no illusions huh. uh, about what about what it takes uh, to learn anything. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, when I think of, of Neil, I think of a very brilliant, thoughtful man. Um, he was prolific uh, with his writing, uh, of course, with his lyrics. Again, I wasn't, you know, familiar with with the Rush canon mm-hmm. uh, of recorded material or his lyric writing, but I did enjoy reading. Uh, you know, a couple of his books and, and the stuff that he would post right. on online. So when he came to the studio, he was uh, uh, quite modest. 
quite open and and I wasn't a fanboy um, <laughs> and and I think that worked because he wanted a mentor yeah um, and so I functioned as that um, and I treated him like any other student and he did his homework and uh, I just uh, I just finished sending a, a, a a short piece um, chronicling uh, some of this uh, teacher-student relationship I had with Neil uh, to the Modern Drummer magazine. Oh, wonderful. And um, I, I said in a piece that, that I felt uh, whatever a couple of practical things I, I, I may have shown him, uh, I think the uh, the result was something more along the lines of that um, uh, he he felt that he had permission. I, I think he he found a confidence in playing this stuff. Uh, and, and again, this was specifically for this uh, Buddy Rich Memorial concert mm. uh, that took place in, in 2008. Uh, so... Um, I was I was happy that he he could go play that stuff with um, with not only some measure of confidence but to have fun doing it. Um, I remember Don Lombardi contacted me and, and asked me to come up to Oxnard. It's about a you know between an hour and an hour and a half uh, drive from where I live uh, to uh, observe a rehearsal that Neil was going to have before he went back East to play with this big band that uh, Tommy Igo was putting together. Okay. Um, and the, uh, the big band was from the uh, uh, California state university at Northridge jazz program that Matt Harris uh, still directs. Um, and that's Matt playing piano on, on that buddy rich thing. So anyway, uh, Neil's running down the stuff and Tom wanted me there just to kind of be a reassuring presence and, and to offer any advice if I heard it at this stage of the game. Um, and, and Neil's drums are up there and the band is set up in a typical big band formation. Mm -hmm. So if you're Neil and you're sitting at the drums, the trumpets and trombones are just to your left. Right. And I looked, and he had this big old kind of Chinese swish-type symbol, you know, hanging vertically. Uh, he might have also had a music stand. It, 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 what was happening, he, he had walled himself off in the band. <laughs> and uh, I could, nobody had, had paid any particular attention to this. First thing I did, I went up and just said, Neil, you really need to hit that thing. He goes, well, yeah, what do you mean? I said, look, you've just put a wall between yourself and the band. I said, take it down. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, okay. <laughs> okay. And so Lauren, his tech, you know, uh, waited for, uh, you know, cue from uh, Neil gave the nod to Lauren and Lauren moved it. and <laughs> Whatever else might have been between Neil and the band, we we minimized and, and, and this isn't anything new for me. If I see a, a, a drummer 
uh, and I'm in a position, you know, uh, like if I'm a guest to the school or something, uh, I'm in a position to offer a suggestion about it. I'll say, you know, why is your music stand up here? Mm -hmm. Um, you, you've, you've set a wall up between yourself and the band. So I'll recommend that, that he or she lower the thing. And, um, you know, you, 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 and I, you know, I used to do the same thing. I, I look at the way I set up my drums back in the day and I had these two symbols that were more vertical than anything else. You couldn't see me. I was glad. And I think Neil was too, that, that I felt the freedom to, uh, to offer, you know, a couple bits of advice. Sure. Uh, because the, the jazz and the big band, uh, tradition just, uh, sort of dictates what works, what doesn't. Did you have any influence on his drum tuning in that scenario? No, gotcha. no, that was, that was all between him and Lauren. Okay. And, you know, his, his head choice. I, you know, I just made the comment about the setup. Cause it just gotcha. seemed like a glaring, uh, yeah. impediment to me. It wasn't going to make things any easier for him. I yeah. thought it would make things harder. So I just wanted him to be able to communicate mm-hmm. visually as well as sonically. Yeah. Um, with the band, um, Neil primarily wanted to work on the hi-hat. And um not sure how this will sound, but I'm going to walk over to my drum set here. Um, so can you hear that? I can, yes. All right. So we worked just on playing the jazz ride pattern on a closed hat. Now, Neil was going to play Love for Sale, you know. <laughs> probably a tempo, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we started slow, and then eventually we'd work it up to speed. Then I brought it back down in tempo. Neil was used to playing the hi-hat where he would open uh, the hat kind of on a beat, so it was... And I was trying to get him to open the hi-hat a bit sooner, so it would be... Open, open. Right. Which is, you know, just how all the jazz guys I've ever heard did it. And Neil had a little, I think, a little more of a binary uh, uh, kind of on-the-beat approach, the way he, maybe the way he sat at the kit, uh, what he was used to. Uh, and he had just played it the other way and had learned it that way, I guess, when he was young. Sure. Um, and not, and he's not the only drummer to play it that way, yep. but the buddy didn't play it that way. Um, the idea was to get it to feel more like someone who would, who would, uh, as I've termed it elsewhere, you know, sp- spend enough time in the jazz universe that that would be kind of a second nature thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it wasn't quite a second nature thing. Now, you know, Neil's attempting to, you know, he's working on this while he's in the middle of preparing for some some big tour that Rush was about to do. And and these are mind-bendingly complex pieces of music. Uh, and he's having to play them at full throttle. Right. You know, this is this is you know, big time rock and roll stuff. So um the 
the jazz hi-hat thing is a little bit of, of the antithesis uh, coupled with this this onerous task of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, playing a, a Buddy Rich tune and, 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 and a signature tune at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, uh, one of the original Buddy Rich tribute concerts, probably the most impressive or uh, successful performance was was the one that Gad did, you know, Steve Gad, because Steve sure. played a shuffle that was authentic, uh, not only, you know, uh, on jazz terms, but it was authentic as far on Steve Gad terms. Interesting. You know, yeah. it was, that's what Steve does. Yeah. And so it sort of satisfied a lot of different things. And, and he wasn't, um, portraying anything and he wasn't play acting at anything. Uh, whereas, uh, a lot of the other drummers, uh, is kind of, yeah, I used to do this when I was in a high school jazz band, or this was something I always thought would be cool to do. Yeah. Um, okay. and there's, you know, there's, there's, there's just going to be a difference there. Um, uh, of course, when I played, you know, Kathy Rich came, <laughs> she came up to me at the rehearsal and she said, you weren't feathering. <laughs> I, I said, you're right, Mayor Culpa. But, you know, again, that was part of the issue was because, you know, Tommy Igo's bass drum was, 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 was pretty dead sounding. I remember, and he had a 10 inch Tom Tom that was cranked up so loud in the PA. I hit it once and recoiled. Um, uh, We'll save another podcast uh, uh, to to discuss uh, the ten inch tom tom and jazz. <laughs> I might defer to <laughs> might defer to Zach for that one. Um. <laughs> you know, I just want to end. Yes, please, Matt. With uh, you know, Neil did did a great job, and he was able to get in touch with uh, an authentic part of his roots. Um, and, uh, it, it was a drumming style and a drumming touch that, uh, he had, uh, uh not been so familiar with for many years. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the jazz, uh, muscle, whether we're talking about the brain or, you know, the touch and tone on the instrument, um, it, it, it's easy for that to get out of shape and, yeah. and, uh, in, in a relatively short amount of time, Neil was able to pull together um, the necessary components so that uh, I think he he did a terrific job paying tribute to this music and introducing it to just a lot of people who otherwise uh, might never have heard it. And 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 so Neil was was truly you know 100 percent an authentic drumming person you know he he was a fan of drumming uh it defined so much of who he was and yet it was such a small part of who he was you know he he was an incredible author uh poetic prolific uh he uh he hit the open road on on that motorcycle uh he reached out to places to people yeah um, he tested himself. And so our 
collaboration was just a very small part, a very small slice of of his experiencing life and wanting to to test himself and 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 to better himself, better his understanding of of some things in the world. And um, he was always very gracious. Uh, he did me a couple favors uh, down the road that he didn't have to, and and I was always quite grateful to him for that. Uh, more than anything else, I was grateful that that he shared a number of thoughts with me, uh, mostly by mail. You know, uh, uh, we had one dinner after a photo shoot in a restaurant somewhere, but you know, when he came to my house, it was strictly for lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I never visited him at his home, so we weren't friends in that sense we were we were very collegial um and bottom line matt just like everyone listening to this uh we were drummers and Hmm. and i'm proud to be in that same brotherhood with him as well as with all your listeners that sounds great man all right peter thank you so much Uh, you're very welcome say hi to zach for me i will i'll see him tomorrow he's in nashville and we've got a, a fun event tomorrow we're gonna hang and uh I'll mention that we spoke, and uh, Peter, thanks again, and uh, we'll be in touch. Cool. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here's Lee Kelly. It's weird to be emotional about somebody you don't know, but because it's an, I, I don't know it's what it is about that for anybody, you know. Yeah. You know, the thousands of people that lined up on the side of the road when Elvis died. The same thing with John Lennon, you know, and, and it, it, different artists passing affects us different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, depends on how, how far the hook was in, you know. That's, that's a good analogy. And while mine and obviously yours too, our desire to play like Neil Peart or be in a band like Rush, we realized that, okay, that's not a realistic goal. It's not a realistic goal, so you go, well, okay, maybe I don't want to play like him. But you but you still listen to the stuff. It's still part of the thread of your life. Yeah. You know, so you still go buy every record if you can't see every tour. Yeah. And a lot of that for me was like just to see three guys make that much noise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> crazy and be pretty amazed by it you know you, you talk about the, how deep the hook goes and i think what makes that hook stay pretty permanent from about the age of whenever you discover them in your early teens or whenever to well into adulthood goes beyond the music it goes beyond what they're doing on stage and in the studio Oh, yeah. Because if you take away the music and just read the words, uh, it's very few songs can stand just words by themselves and read them as an actual piece of work without the music. Because mm-hmm. most of them don't make sense without it. But if you take anything that Neil wrote and pull it, pull them and separate them. Yeah. The words still read as, as a as a storyline poem, mm-hmm. or morality play, or whatever the subject matter was, uh, you know, during those 
four to eight minutes or four to 20 minutes. And that was one of the, that was one thing that stuck in. And that's also why I like his words, you know, and read the book, have read the books and all that stuff. Cause his command of the English language was, you know, I, I'm like, okay, you got Shakespeare, you got George Carlin, you got Neil, Neil Pierce. Mm-hmm. You know, the three guys to me who had that I've read a lot of and watched a lot of that those three guys had such command of the English language. Mm-hmm. That's where the, it really goes deep. Sitting on the beach at Hogs Inlet in Cherry Grove, South Carolina, and somebody played Exit Stage Left, the Tom Sawyer version of or Exit Stage Left version of Tom Sawyer. And that was it. I went and got everything I could get my hands on. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, it, it was a, it was a slow process, but you know, you know, it was that moving pictures and signals, and then signals was my first concert ever. When I went to see Clockwork Angels, I had picked up a Craigslist ticket or somebody, you know, or whatever it was, and the guy was supposed to meet me. At Bridgestone, swap cash for the ticket. Yeah. Well, halfway there, I called him and said, hey, man, I'm on the way. I'll be there this time. He goes, man, all right, I just sold the tickets. I couldn't wait. I'm like, dude, seriously? What? Oh, yeah, man. I pulled off at Stewart's Ferry, and I was, you know, a little pissed off, obviously. So I called Tanae, and I'm like, I'm home. She goes, look, they're your favorite band. Find another ticket. Happened to find 11th row tickets in front of Alex from – somebody on Craigslist. Now, I'd never sat that close either. In 11 shows, I think I counted, 11 or 12. Uh-huh. It's every tour since Signals except Grace Under Fire, or uh, Grace Under Pressure, and R40. Mm-hmm. I saw all the other ones. Yeah. The next week, on whatever website it was, they put pictures up at the show. They're, you know, they're tour photographer gets and you can buy the pictures. Danae goes and looks at him just out of curiosity, and she finds a picture with me in it <laughs> from shot behind Neil. <laughs> so on my wall in yeah. my drum room, there's a shot of them from behind Neil's clockwork orange kit, and about 11, 12 rows back, you can pick me out. Yeah, I remember. I've seen that picture when I was at your place. Dude. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, from exit stage left or moving pictures to about to power windows. I'm like, that was huge in my world. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where I was in the room playing along with the records and stuff. Yeah. You know, and after you figure out that, you know, that's not bar band material that you're going to get hired for <laughs> playing that way. You kind of drift away from it, but you still go back and listen to the stuff. Yeah, uh, I thought the te- I thought Tess for Echo was fantastic, just because it's a different approach to drumming, drumming, and what he got from Gruber, and it kind of softened the edges a little bit, so to speak. You know, which I guess reading the articles, that was his purpose was you know to, to he was he felt he was becoming more mechanical, so he went to Freddie Gruber to kind of make it less mechanical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's one I love Half the World, as odd as that is. That yeah. song Half the World. Because I listened to that and I was like, that is the grooviness I've ever heard him play. <laughs> I mean, he's just digging a trench. You know, we're mo- we're most of the other stuff, you know, we're it's he's he's created a part. I can't wrap my head around the meticulous hours they put through, you know, they went through crafting that stuff. 
and what's on the what was on the cutting room floor? Hey, let's try this. Well, that didn't work. What about this? Everything about him, the music, the lyrics, that band, it was deeper and wider than anything I'd ever heard. And I still couldn't get over three guys were doing that. Yeah. And every time I saw it live, even I know there were some sequences going on, and we all, you know, we all knew that. There were, but it wasn't like they were running tracks like yeah. we hear. Mm-hmm. They weren't running tracks. They were they were doing what rock bands did in the eighties. Yeah. Hey, we can't quite cover that one part. Let's put it on a sequence. But most times, you know, they were playing it down. They were triggering it themselves and, you know, had had a lot of they made being kind of weird and a free thinker and being smart cool. <laughs> hey, that's a great way to put it. That really is. Yeah. Made it okay to be that way. Yeah, because there weren't many Rush fans in my high school. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there were a few. But, you know, in, but once you got in the music community in the bigger town of Charlotte, outside of Concord, yeah, you found those fans. Mm-hmm. You know, they were obviously showing up the shows because they sold out, sold out every time they came. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this. You know, what's ironic about this mm-hmm. is you asked me to be on the Working Drummer podcast at the Rush Tribute Show, the Na- the National Drummers Jam thing. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> I remember that vividly because I was sick as a dog, and you came running out the door after me, going, "Lee, come here!" And you were you were yeah. all excited about the podcast, and, and like you know, I was excited for you. <laughs> that it was a and it's crazy, man. It's so, it was so long time ago. But Lee, thank you, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon. You got it, Matt. Be okay. good, man. Thank you. See you, man. Bye. Bye. We now have Josh Burkheimer. You're the one that introduced me to him. <laughs> so <laughs> that's certainly for me where it, it starts for me with, with Neil is uh, sitting in the back of a, um, I think it was like a church bus or something we were on together <laughs> with like the youth group. And you're like, put the you put your Walkman headphones on. And I, I mean, it was the YYZ drum solo for Exit Stage Left. I'd never heard anything like it. And at that point, you know, I'd been around uh, a lot of jazz musicians and things like that. But to hear somebody play uh, the way that Neil played with um, his technique was so flawless that it gave him such precision and such power. Yeah. And that was something that I was. I guess I was striving for, for myself with my own playing was just really super clean. Um, you know, all the rudiments and all of that stuff that went into, to developing technique. Uh, and he had it Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was just, uh, and of course too, I think, I think the other thing that was really appealing at a, at a young age was he had this enormous drum set that had like every toy and bell and stuff on it that as a kid, that was so cool. Yeah. Uh, Cause there, you know, to, to his, uh, his drum sets were incredibly important to, well, obviously to, to what he did because he was such a, um, an arranger on the drums for himself, the way that he constructed his drum parts, the way he thought about that, it was obviously very thought out. I know that's been pretty well documented how he 
put stuff together and how he recorded the songs and all of that. But I, you know, still think that, uh, well, he's, his, uh, his ability to, to put parts together, um, you know, that worked and were interesting. Um, and they were technically difficult, especially navigating the odd time signatures and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing that Mm -hmm. they did. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody was, I mean, yeah, there were some groups that would do that, but they really certainly captivated my attention super early there just it was undeniable that the guy was one of the greats and you had to check it out and like you said there there's certainly been periods of time where i probably haven't listened to them much at all Mm -hmm. um i don't strive to have the 30-piece drum set anymore (laughs) it's it's, uh (laughs) you know those kind of things that as you go on in your development you start figuring out what works for you and what's and uh, you know there's only one rush right exactly <laughs> that, yeah. uh, you, you don't you don't put together a neil Peart drum set for going and playing with a with a cover band <laughs> on the weekends unless you just really want to throw your back out quickly right. <laughs> lugging all that stuff everywhere <laughs> a, re- a really piss on the piss off the other band members and the engineer and yeah you've got 10 toms and you've got a uh, an eight by ten stage to fit everybody on. Go <laughs> and go <laughs> and go. Well, no matter where, what time in their career, those guys were all serious, you know, uh, students of their craft. And whether it was in um, uh, preparation for the recording or just the equipment that they used or whatever it might be, they that you know, I I see what they did was what I was trying to do as a younger kid too, which was just absorb as much material as I could learn as much as I could and push myself as hard as I could in all the different directions to try and cover it all. And it's darn near impossible to do that, but that was the intent. Yeah. And I, I relate to that with, with them and their willingness to take chances. Um, I think especially right now uh, where I am and what, what I'm doing career wise and the people that I'm involved with musically and what they're trying to do is a, is very similar to what they had going on uh, after the Caressa steel record leading into 2112, where the label was like, we want hits. Yeah. We want, you know, you guys, this is, and they felt like, okay, this is it. This could very well be it. We're going to go out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> and we're going to put out the most, you know, well, 2112 was just, that was the first rush record I ever bought. Wow. And that first side, especially, I mean, the second side is fantastic too, but the first side was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. And I always loved hearing them do that live in concert. That was always it their desire to just say, we're going to do it our way Mm -hmm. and we're going to do it regardless of what anybody else is trying to tell us what to do or whatever. And even like with the the things they wore when all they really wanted to do was just wear a t-shirt and jeans and just be kind of normal. And they finally got to that place that where they were like, all right, we're not going to wear the kimonos anymore. And (laughs) all the ridiculousness that they tried. And I just feel like they definitely, uh, man, I don't know, dude. It was such a uh, shock hearing him about him yeah. dying, and and obviously, I think since nobody knew what was going on, 
it's so reflective of who he was as a person that he was so private about it um, and just went through it with dignity and with his circle of people around him. Um, I don't know. He's uh, he's certainly got to be in my, you know, my top five of the folks that really made the biggest impact on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the very first time I ever saw them uh, was actually with Troy yeah. at Cincinnati, uh, the call at the um, arena there in downtown Cincinnati, and um, Mr. Big was opening up for him on that tour. Yes. Yes. And I had really great seats that were just up off the floor right by Getty. So when Rush took the stage, Billy Sheehan came out and just hung out with us in our row to watch Getty play. Oh, my god! Which was, was really cool. But, uh, yeah, you know, that's the Rush is the only band I've ever camped out for tickets before. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it twice. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. On that Presto tour with Mr. Big... You and I got to go together at to see them in Columbus, yeah. At the minor league baseball arena, arena, whatever. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, way to go, sports fan. I'm a sport. Yeah, go sports. <laughs> Sporting, go sports ball. Sports ball. Uh, <laughs> that was a trip, man. And uh, watching Mr. Big, and I brought this up with Pat Torpy later. That when I watched Mr. Big, I was I was so fascinated with with Pat's playing, and I didn't want to like it because I was like such a such a Russophile and a Neil fan. And I'm like, oh no, I like this other drummer too. He's really great. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and Pat mentioned that he remembers that show because it was in a baseball stadium, and he and Getty got the glove and the ball out, and and and. You know, through the baseball because Getty was. Wow. Like, yeah. Thought, Getty was but he's like, I remember that. I said, you, Man, that was like. Nine. I was trying to think about it the other day just to try and remember how many times did I actually see them mm-hmm. play. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, you know, I, I'm i thinking I probably saw them eight or nine times. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and I guess I would always say this too about them the last time I saw them was the best time I ever saw them. That's it was like every time I saw them, it just got better. It just got, you know, I just loved it. And I saw them in all kinds of different venues, uh, different places around the country. Um, and they were always spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I loved reading Neil's books. I mean, that's the other thing too, that mm-hmm. he's left us. That's so uh, important. Ghost Rider in particular was one that really, really, hit me and his whole journey uh there and and um it's just the guy's uh he's as iconic as they could ever be is there is there an album or or a song or something like that that kind of takes you to a place that you're just that that's important to you like maybe to an early place in your in your in your life or your yeah yeah I think for me subdivisions probably would be mm-hmm. that song and and signals that particular record um, I love this drum sound on that record <laughs> yeah yeah just oh so good um, but subdivisions especially was a big one for me um, I had that band in high school that was called After Image so uh, you know we. <laughs> we, we we stole one of their song titles to name the band and 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 subdivisions was the 
the only song that we ever learned because it was so hard for all of us. It was like it just it took us months to get that song put together. And that was not one of their more challenging songs. That was a an easier one. And and uh you know actually getting in a in a room with a band and trying to actually work those parts out, you just realize, oh my gosh, this stuff is really difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think too just like the message of that song um, I relate to it. I mean, we were kids of the suburbs yeah, and, you know, and kind of a little bit of outsiders and in, in some ways, maybe, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of relate a little bit with, uh, you know, the lyric of that song too. So that one's certainly one that I think, um, yeah, it means an awful lot. Awful lot. Entree New off of Permanent Ways was another one I just mm-hmm. always loved too. I, Interesting. Cool. Yeah, that one that's another one to me that was uh anytime I hear hear that one, it's just really powerful for sure. Selfishly, I was hoping there was going to be more yes. stuff. Yes. Not that they were necessarily gonna tour, but maybe they'd do another record or maybe he'd do some more instructional stuff I, you know who knows where that journey was going to lead mm-hmm. um but you know what i mean i i think too the well is so deep there already <laughs> yeah yeah you know it's like i can i could put any one of their records on right now and get ins- inspired by it um and it'll it will always be that way and each record has a different well, like you were saying, when, the way you and Mike talk about this era or that era, I certainly think about, you know, where was I the first time I listened to Power Windows or, um, you know, something, or what was the first time I listened to Hemispheres in my room, uh, you know, and just freaking out about what I'm hearing coming through the speakers. And, and uh, so I certainly relate to it that way, too. Here's my conversation with Scott Corey. I, I don't know. I posted, you know, a ton of the different things on on Facebook in in the immediate aftermath, and um, I think one of them I came across that Modern Drummer cover, April nineteen eighty four, mm-hmm. which was like the second, no, third, my third issue of Modern Drummer, <laughs> and it's like, and it couldn't have hit at a more appropriate time. I'm like, man, this is this guy is like single handedly the biggest reason I I pursued this is a career so do you remember what what album it was what what age you were yeah a- absolutely because the 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 ironic thing behind it was when uh my dad got a job down in Nashville uh right before i turned 13 <laughs> and so we had been living in a suburb of Chicago, about 40 miles west. You know, that was the only place I ever knew. He gets this job. You know, here I am about to turn 13. We moved to Franklin, Tennessee. And, you know, and I'm going through all the teenage teenage angst and everything involved around that, right? And so, you know, cable TV was new. MTV was brand new. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and here I am you know, teenager going, man, MTV music videos all the time. This, this is so cool. And, you know, and I'm watching stuff and I was, I was getting big into the police and of course, you know, all the kind of classic rock that had led up to that point. And I 
very distinctly, very vividly remember every time. So this was this this was January 1981 when we moved to Franklin, mm-hmm. and you know, so I'm watching tons of MTV and everything, you know, because I, I I didn't have a lot of friends at that immediate moment. It took a little while to get reestablished, and um, so moving pictures comes out. I forget which month of '81, and MTV, of course, is playing the video for Tom Sawyer. Jeez. And I I could not get past Getty Lee's voice at first. Mm-hmm. And I I vividly remember, like, every time that song came on, I'm like, wait, oh, I know that voice. And I would switch it to something else. <laughs> because Because I made that rash judgment, you know, because of his voice at first. Well, man, just a few months later, I think it was, one of our like the, a neighbor kid friend of mine, like a block over, was having a birthday party. And so, you know, so all, all the guys there in the neighborhood and some other school kids were over there. And someone gave him a copy of Moving Pictures. And he, like, immediately puts it on the turntable. <laughs> and, and, and we're just, all of a sudden, you know, I don't know. It, something, it, it took on a whole different meaning. I didn't care what Getty's voice sounded like. In fact, suddenly now it was starting to sound cooler <laughs> than it did. And and I'm sitting we're sitting there, we're all passing around the liner notes and everything. Oh. And I'm you know, I'm looking at those pictures of, of Neil. You know, it, it had the picture of each of them sort of in action, right? Right. I think Getty was doing like the the head dip and then moving back and raising up. Yeah. And it had the black and white, like, you know. Um and, 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 and I'm looking and I'm starting to read down the list of all the instruments Neil's playing. And I'm like, what, what the heck are crow tails? <laughs> so I, I didn't know, I didn't even know how to pronounce crow tallies, let alone what they were. And, but, you know, and I'm, we're sitting here and we kept listening to the album over and over. And, you know, and YYZ, I'm like, wait a second, because the kid's dad had a really great stereo system. And I'm like, what is that like knocking wood sound? And there's like glass breaking mm-hmm. and it's like, what the heck is all this stuff? And, and dude, I, I remember it so vividly that that, that was the moment that I was all in. You could not be any more hooked than, and, and then it just became an obsession. Like, okay, I've got to know more about this guy. And this is, this is the coolest thing. And, and because I didn't, I, I, I don't think I had seen a drummer at that point that had a set of chimes behind him and then, you know, and orchestra bells and those crow tail things. I had to figure out what they were. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, like the, ne- I think the next day at band, I'm asking my band director, what, what are crow tails? You know, I, well, yeah, I get my lesson right there. So, um, you know, that more than anything, I think that's what told me when the time came, I've got to go to college to study this. Cause I mean, this this dude who plays, he's one of the most incredible drummers I've ever heard, and he's got these other instruments that aren't drum set. Yeah. And and they're, so, like, there's this, you know, I, I had been in in junior high band and high school band, and it, but this, man, this took on a completely different angle. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I mean, I, I know it's kind of cliche and everything, but it, I mean, freaking really was magical. I think when we did the interview, I may have I may have mentioned having a 
kind of kind of an epiphany where I thought, okay, after high school, what do I want to do? And I think I mentioned I had a very clear vision that of trying to envision myself like in a three piece suit behind a desk, and it's like no way, mm-hmm. that's not that's not going to do it. But I mean, you know, I had I had that vision, but I think the thing that really set me up for this was was had a lot to do with that one moment, that one birthday party, that multi listening to you know just flipping the record over and just you know side one moving pictures, side two moving pictures, back to side one. But you know, um, that that was one of the biggest, if not the biggest moment it's mentioned before many probably many times that when you go to a rush concert you've got heavy metal fans you've got jazz fans you have fusion fans you have right rock and rollers and geeks and you know everything from talking heads and the police to van halen and metallica and everything yeah, in between it, it it's like it it resonates on so many different uh, across so many different genres, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, because people people can love it from uh, more of the melodic harmonic aspect. People can love it more from uh, the rhythmic complexity. People can love it more from just the raw rhythmic. You know, the, I mean, gosh, like, so many things came together. Mm-hmm. And, and man, when I, and see, it took me a while. I can't remember when, I don't know if I realized immediately, if I put them together, that Neil was writing all the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And then when that piece of the puzzle became clear, it's like, you know, then all of a sudden my mind just, everything that I was admiring about the drumming, became even more closely connected to the lyrics and it's like oh of course of course he was writing the lyrics i mean you don't drummers just don't sit around and make up those kind of parts just when they hear lyrics it's you know it was something deeper than that yeah and obviously you know he he was a voracious reader um and i think i think that also fueled my passion because when i was younger i hated to read Mm mm-hmm I think it wasn't until some point of junior high, almost high school, where I read the first couple of books that really caught my interest. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so then finding out, you know, oh, yeah, he was reading Coleridge and everything. That's here's here's Xanadu here. It's like, oh, wow, man, this is this is really this is really cool. He's he's a thinker. He's he's kind of a health you know, bike junkie too, yeah. and and a drummer and a lyricist and yeah. So it's but it, but it's so funny, you know. I, I I'm sitting here realizing, you know, I'm talking about him like he's a Superman or something, which is probably the last thing he would have ever wanted someone to, to talk about him like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From from everything I've read and heard, you know, interviews and everything. Yeah. Uh, but what like you just said a second ago, I think that's part of what we all feel as an accessibility to him is that he, he was the last person to say, look, you know, y'all need to bow down to me. Don't you know who I'm Neil? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, that's the last thing that would ever come out of his mouth from what I understand. If I had had a chance, like just to sit down with him for an evening talking, 
I, I think, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure I would have geeked out and asked a few of the total drumistic questions, but, but I could see the conversation like very quickly going to something else, something, you know, world events or, Mm -hmm. or a book, one of us or the other had just read that really rocked our world. And I could, I I could see suddenly there be a rabbit hole that, you know, three hours later, we realize it's three hours later and we just, you know, spent the whole evening talking about, um, a Chinese philosopher or something, you know, and, and, Oh yeah, didn't we start by I was asking you something about the YYZ drum solo on the next thing. Yeah, and that lasted for like three minutes and then we talked about Chinese philosophers all night. Um Yeah. And how good this McCallan is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. My co host, Zach Albetta. He was one of the first categories in my drumming consciousness, you know. Um and before you know until until he died it had been so long since he you know occupied much headspace for me mm-hmm. like i kind of absorbed him and digested him during my teenage years and then moved on to other stuff um and anytime i would see a picture of him or or hear a rush song or whatever it'd be like oh yeah there's neil that's 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 neil whatever mm-hmm. um but you know having listened to to a lot since since he died, I'm, I'm just reminded of, um, how much he influenced me, not in terms of, um, not really in terms of what I play, but in terms of like how I interact with music. Um, and I think before I even started playing or listening to jazz, um, his influence made me predisposed to um figuring out how many different things you could do with one song you know like before i even started playing jazz my playing was not repetitive (laughs) you know because his playing is not repetitive he's he's looking to you know if he has a space to fill he's not going to fill it the same way twice in a song um and i think uh you know looking back i think my drum teacher played that way um, and, and Neil played that way. And that really influenced just how, how I think about music when I have to, when I have to play the same beat for 16 bars in a row, like I still kind of have to think about it. Like, nope, you're not allowed to do anything else. <laughs> right. Like you know? it, it, compositionally, uh, yeah. like, a, like a, uh, what is it? Uh, through composition or, uh, yeah. 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 Through composed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really cool to listen to him again. Um, because, uh, it just it blows my mind how much musical information he packed into one song, um, and really, like when when I think about his playing, I always flash to I forgot what DVD it was that he did. It was probably in the nineties, but he like he he used an aerial shot of his drum set, and he kind of deconstructed it, like he stripped it all away, and and showed how his you know monster spaceship drum set is actually a glorified four piece (laughs) yeah do you remember this i don't i can't place exactly what video it is yeah yeah but like he he just explained how like you know my drum set doesn't look like other people's drum sets but that setup of like kick snare hi-hat rack tom floor tom ride cymbal 
is right there. It's right in the middle. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's how he approached playing. Like, that's not just how he approached his setup. That's how he approached playing. Like for all, um, for all his, his prowess, uh, around the drum set and for all the spectacle of, you know, his setup and his playing, um, I, I think like, you know, 80, 85% of it is just built around that four piece, uh, setup and that four piece sound. And I think, I mean, even when I listen to the older stuff, I, I know the, that his physical setup wasn't what he described in that DVD, but his playing still was like, it was, it was very, you know, kick snare, high hat ride driven. And of course there were like bells and whistles mm-hmm. a lot, but, um, you know, I think people get the impression that he was just playing every part of that kit in every measure, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. and he, he wasn't like, he was still in touch with his role as a drummer, but he embellished it so brilliantly with, um, you know, with the, the way he approached, like you said, like kind of a through composed, um, approach. I think that's why when we were kids and you want to play along with the records, you still could. Yes, totally. To, to a degree with, with whatever we had. Right. Know. Right. Um, yeah. And just the, you know, in the average rush song, um, Neil didn't play anything that was, you know, rhythmically or technically, you know, completely bonkers. Like it was, it was advanced. Don't get me wrong. But, um, as I've been listening to it the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, it, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't beyond us. Like the same way the lack of that setup wasn't beyond us kind of emulating it. Like he, um, I don't know. He just used a vocabulary the, the vocabulary he used, I think from just, just from a physical drumming standpoint, like it wasn't as advanced as we, as we think it is. Like sure. it wasn't yeah. nearly, it wasn't nearly as advanced as like a Marco Miniman or a, a Virgil Donati or like he wasn't, he wasn't that guy. He used kind of like, it was the same way in his writing. Like he used the same words that everybody else used. It wasn't like, you know, mm-hmm. his, vo- his vocabulary was light years beyond everyone else. He just, did it a different way and, and found a much more active role for the drums and, and, um, you know, kind of the same accessible language that, that Keith Moon or John Bonham had used, but it was just more refined and it popped up more often. Um, so like, I mean, it sounds like I'm trying to, um, downplay. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I mean, the using the, of the comparison um, of the words, that, that's a, that's a great comparison for sure. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, man, I know those words, but how did I not know to put those in that order? Right, right. There there were times when, you know, he would do something that was very fusion-like, uh, especially around, like, from Farewell to Kings through Signals and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. That era, in sections, I'm trying to think of something like Free Will during mm-hmm. the solo section, and it always comes to that section, and there's so much intricacies in a very fusion kind of way, where mm-hmm. that kind of that almost, you know, blows apart that analogy because I'm like, okay, what is going on? There's so much there. It's almost like a really fast, uh, 
some some diddles going on between the hands and the feet mm-hmm. that's taking it into fusion territory for a for a guy that tends to be very heavy-handed right and right. um that's where it comes back around and, and mike jackson and i have had this conversation it's like what was he listening to at that time because man he's really he's really playing uh some 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 crazy stuff with the hands uh not just fast not just um uh dense if you will mm-hmm. right um yeah, I mean, you know, every everybody knows by this point that he was a huge jazz fan, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like when when you think about the time that that was recorded, like what else was going on? It was it was Tony Williams and Sun Ra and Billy Billy Cobham and um, you know that that kind of vibe, and I think I think that informed him um, in the in the early going you know, his, his love for that music and his study of it. I think, I think maybe that's why like he, his playing wasn't repetitive, like going back to what I started with, um, you know, he was not a jazz player, but, and, and he wasn't a classical player, but he, he took, you know, kind of the, the improvisation, the non-repetitiveness of jazz and just kind of the intentional through composition of classical and, and just, put it on the drum set. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I also like that hit like the non repetitive nature of a lot of his playing, um, made the progression of his drum part, like part of the song, like a chord progression, you know, hmm. like you think about the first minute of, um, Tom Sawyer and like the, the variations in the kick drum are, part of that song the same way the chord changes are you know the the song that i really connected with as a teenager was uh subdivisions um <laughs> because yeah. you know that's that's just a great uh kind of picture of just like teenage loneliness um which which i definitely <laughs> experienced um so so yeah it was like you know here's here's this song the drumming is amazing and the lyrics capture what I'm going through, and the drummer wrote the lyrics. You know, like, how cool was that for uh, a lonely teenage Zach? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if bravado is that for some people, or, um, yeah. you know, other things. Um, but you're not the first person in this uh, recording that's mentioned that, mm-hmm. that's mentioned subdivisions. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing, like all the things how he breaks the stereotype. Even even last night, I mentioned reading a book about class struggle, uh, and the bass player goes, "Wait, you're a drummer, you don't read." And I'm <clears throat> sitting there on the break with my laptop working on this episode. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, fuck you, man. I'm working on. <laughs> 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 right about somebody right. that writes and you know he, he he got the nickname the professor um yeah. uh, and and i think some people you know used it kind of pejoratively like oh here's this drummer like trying to be smart he's up his own ass um <laughs> but but like you know in his in his playing and his writing and what he pursued um you know like he he did it 
he did it honestly. He it wasn't cynical. It wasn't trying to be smart. He, like he really was into Eastern philosophy, and he, <laughs> you know, he um, he didn't get into motorcycles to be macho. Like he he really was into riding and just like seeing the world from a motorcycle and and what that did to his brain and what that did to his heart and um yeah i i think what you what you're trying to say is that that there was no there was no cynicism in his sophistication my wife uh, said uh like you know she she was never into rush she was you know she's barely aware of of neil peart um but uh when when he died, I like uh, you know we got done with work and everything, and I was like, Neil Neil Pert died today, and he w- and she said, uh, Oh, is is he the one that did the Purdy Shuffle? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, it was this moment. I was like, Am I am I happy that she knows what the Purdy Shuffle is, or am I sad that she got it? <laughs> like it was one of those drummer wife moments like oh i love you <laughs> was she being serious or was she making a joke oh no she was dead serious <laughs> <laughs> listener one quick housekeeping thing i want to mention stay tuned next week for zach's interview with cole mcsween that'll be next week if you've listened this far into the podcast uh, Maybe I can safely share a, a, a couple thoughts about how Neil affected me and my drumming in my life. So many of us were inspired by Neil. A lot of us wanted to be just like him in so many ways. I was on a tour up in Canada about eight or nine years ago, and I was on a tour bus like Neil. I was reading one of his books. I believe it was Roadshow. One of the things that Neil subscribes to is the idea of what's the most excellent thing I can do today. And that really resonated with me. And although I wasn't playing in a band like Rush, I I wanted so much to feel that kindred spirit with him. There was a day on the tour I was in British Columbia and I sought out the bike store where I could rent a mountain bike. The people in the bike shop were kind enough to loan a bike to me in exchange for a case of beer. They pointed me in the direction of a mountain I should climb for some of the best single-track mountain biking. I rode across town, and I got to the base of the mountain and was already exhausted, but I was determined to do this ride and have an adventure. When I finally made it to the trail, it was all those things and more. I experienced things that were scary and exciting, and it reminded me of what Neil was writing about in Roadshow. I was by myself in the middle of nowhere, and when I got down from the base of that mountain, I was on such a natural high, I immediately called my wife and had to tell her about this adventure I had. That experience for me is something that I credit Neil and his inspiration. I'm so thankful that we have the books and the videos and the DVDs and all the music to continue to enjoy for the rest of our lives. But thanks, Neil. Thanks for your inspiration. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.